0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Kwok Le. Kwok is a research scientist at Google. Kwok, welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. Hi, hi, everyone. Uh, It's great to have you on the show. I've followed your research for uh, your work for quite some time, and I'm looking forward to digging into some of the new things that you're working on. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you got
1: started working
0: in machine learning.
1: Uh, Okay, so um, I was born in Vietnam. Uh, I did my undergrad in Australia. Uh, and uh, in my second year of my undergrad uh, i started a summer project uh, doing machine learning uh, with uh, alex smola uh, back in australia and uh, back then i was uh, playing around with kernel methods uh, and then um, i uh, did my uh, phd at stanford uh, on you know a lot of deep learning back in the day when deep learning was not Uh, Very cool, (laughs) and and uh, that's around 2007. Okay. Um, and around 2000 and uh, uh, 11, I uh, uh, did a summer internship uh, at Google, and um, that was when uh, Google Brain project uh, was kind of founded. So when I was there, that was a Andrew Ng and uh, Jeff Dean and Greg Corrado was there, and <laughs> I was the intern. So we started out quite small. <laughs> that sounds That's awesome. Quite cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then uh, I did some of the, you know, uh, scaling up neural networks uh, with uh, the Google uh, Brain folks, and then um, uh, you know, and then uh, uh, after two years, I did uh, some work on machine translation mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Ilya and. Uh, uh, Oreo uh, Vignal, he's now at DeepMind. Uh, uh, Ilya is now at OpenAI, mm-hmm. and we developed some of the end to end translation uh, methods. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, around 2016, I started looking into more like, uh, you know, AutoML uh neural architecture search. Yeah. And uh, uh, more recently, I looked into more like, a, uh, together with uh, AutoML, I also look into uh, semi supervised learning and so on.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Now you mentioned early on, uh, doing work with Alex Mola. Was he, uh, was this before he was at Carnegie Mellon or was he visiting in Australia?
1: Uh, he was a professor in Australia. And, oh, really? Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I went to, uh, um, a university in a small area uh, in the capital city of Australia called Canberra. Canberra. Uh, he was, uh-huh. yeah, Canberra. And he was, uh, um, uh, a professor, there doing research. So I thought, uh, you know, I had I have been long um, very interested in uh, AI and machine learning. And I took mm-hmm. before that I took a class in data mining and so on. And I thought, uh-huh. you know, it's a little bit boring. But uh, machine learning, the ability to to actually learn, is actually uh, uh, super fascinating. So I, I contacted him, and uh, he he uh, uh, he was doing like kernel methods. Um, machine learning um and and we we worked together for maybe uh a few years yeah wow. before wow. he went to uh he went to uh america and then cmu and uh, uh, amazon
0: okay okay yeah. um so a lot of your recent work uh has been focused on this idea of um you know automating machine learning and neural architecture search to allow machines to find the best uh, deep learning architectures and the like you know talk a little bit about how you arrived at working in that area and what some of the motivations uh were for getting started digging into that
1: problem yeah 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 so i've been um long interested in this idea of self-improvement Machines should be cell uh, improving itself on machine mm-hmm. learning, right? And mm-hmm. uh, even and when I started uh, doing kernel methods with Alex, I always ask him, you know, how the the kernel bandwidth and so on, how some of the hyperparameters uh in kernel methods uh, decided. And, you know, uh, apparently they decided by using things like um, uh, cross-validation and so on. Mm-hmm. And then when I work on kernel methods, uh, sorry, neural networks, my hope is to Make the hyperparameters go away, but turns out it's the opposite. So if now if you look at a a convolution neural networks, uh, is um it has a lot of hyperparameters, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. how many num- la- uh, how many layers you want it to be, and how many channels you want it to be, and what are the, some of the high, size of hyperparameters and so on, like kernel width. Not to in, mention all the training
0: parameters.
1: Yeah, all training the uh, yeah and learning rate. And uh, as researchers develop more and more techniques uh, for neural nets, there's more uh, decisions that you have to make. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is like a problem that, uh, you know, can be helped by a little bit of automation. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, uh, so I... Uh, uh, I I observe a lot of my colleagues at Google when they design neural networks. And um, I asked them about the principles of designing neural networks. And you know, you started out having some really solid principles, like uh, you add skip connections so that gradient can flow through the network and so on. But as you tune the network harder and harder, you no longer have the principle. It's, a, it's around you know uh, trial and error, right? You, you try this a little bit and it seems a little bit better. Uh, so you try you try that more. So I think that that is something that may be ready for automation. So even during my grad school, I already thought about trying this, but I thought, you know, maybe we didn't have enough compute because training in that already takes, uh, took me days. Um, mm-hmm. So when I saw that neuro, you can train neural nets uh, uh, in uh, 30 minutes or something like that uh, you know, for, on CIFAR, I thought, oh, maybe this is the right time to try this. So that's when I started doing uh, this neural architecture search in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that
0: you know, even with all of the compute resources of Google, you had to wait until the time was compressed enough in order to be able to tackle the problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. Turns out that to get really good results, you want the networks to be really big, Mm -hmm. and that will take a long time to train. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's funny coming from me that we have so much resources at Google, but training neural net is still uh, taking a long time. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, and so maybe talk about the the first steps in um in that area. Did you jump right into neural architecture search, or was that the you know, a, 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 an end stage or an end result of this work.
1: Well, you know, I I, I work on uh, some of the related ideas on and off uh, since 2012, like playing around with how to do better hyperparameter tuning for neural mm-hmm. networks. And none of that is really published because I didn't have good results. Uh, you know, I didn't have <laughs> enough compute and so on. So, so. I tried it on and off uh, over the time. You know, every year I would set out some time to try this idea for a few months, and you know, and it didn't work very well uh, because lack of compute and so on. And then um, around two thousand sixteen, I met uh, Berdov, who is my colleague now at Google, and uh, he's he's very talented. So we say, oh, let's let's try uh, this idea of uh, using like a a reinforcement learning to generate a network uh like a little layer in a network for uh for a cifa model cifa model is already uh, at that time you you could say that you know train in a, a few uh, depends on how where you want it to be but you know from 30 minutes to a few hours and that seems like about the right amount of time to get this going. And my prediction is that you have to train maybe either between from 1000 to 10,000 submodels. And uh, I I did a backup envelope calculation and I thought, oh, this might be the right time to do it. But, you know, I have tried this, some of these related ideas in, you know, much before that. Mm -hmm. So CIFAR,
0: um, for those that don't know, is um, digit, handwritten digit recognition problem, right? Um, Oh, it, um,
1: uh, that's MNIST. I'm sorry, 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 I'm, I'm,
0: yeah. I'm MNIST. Uh, So you're doing a CIFAR, which is a image recognition or yeah. object detection and images. When you say you're doing tens of thousands of models, uh, is that part of the optimization process that you're describing here? You're expecting that yeah. you're going to need to do 10,000 in order to optimize the hyperparameters?
1: Yeah. So in this process, you have a controller which is also a machine learning model, right? And every time uh, it makes an update, uh, that's basically it uh, has to it has to st- uh, try training one model to convergence, one CFA model to mm-hmm. convergence, and it will take the signal from the convergence of the C uh, the CFA model. You know, maybe uh, the CFA model will get seventy percent. So that 70% will be used as a signal to make one update for the the controller, Mm -hmm. one update, right? So typically, uh, machine learning models take a long time to train. So it it requires, you know, 10,000 updates. So that's basically the number of models that we had to try.
0: You know, how do you distinguish between, like, doing your hyperparameter optimization and kind of architecture search? Um, Because there is a varying degree of complexity in trying to come up with these new architectures. Yeah. And your more recent work on this is like using evolutionary algorithms and the like mm-hmm. to do this. Can you maybe talk through kind of the progression of complexity that you went through?
1: Yeah. So, um, the first, uh, project that we did was, um, uh, architecture search for like a CIFAR model okay. and, uh, that already was already very expensive uh, back when we did it and we didn't choose hyperparameters you only in other words we didn't choose hyperparameters like uh, learning rate or weight decay or dropout we mm-hmm. just focus on architectural hyperparameters basically okay. you know number of layers what kind of player do you use in what stage in the network and that's already took us like almost a week for every time we try this it takes like a week on a few hundred uh, GPUs. So after that, uh, we moved to uh, ImageNet and because ImageNet, the network is bigger, uh, we decided uh, to use this idea called transfer learning, which is basically find a module that works well on CIFAR 10 and transfer it to ImageNet because searching directly on ImageNet would be very uh, difficult, Mm -hmm. it's very expensive. Now, in parallel with that, we also try a lot of methods in not only in reinforcement learning, and uh, but also in evolution, um, and we also observe the evolution it does um, as well or even better than reinforcement learning. So we slowly adopt more um, uh, reinforcement. Uh, sorry, uh, evolutionary methods, um, and then. Uh, so, some Did of the first—any
0: an, intuition for why evolution works better than reinforcement learning?
1: Oh, I see. Um, um, so, evolution ha- is very flexible and very easy to implement, right? Uh, uh, for example, in evolution, you just need to decide uh, mutation and crossover. Mutation meaning you have a network and then you just change it a little bit, and a uh, crossover meaning take two networks and uh, make them. So uh, implementing evolution is actually uh, quite easy. Now in, in contrast, um, uh, reinforcement learning, we, because we're not uh, experts in reinforcement learning. So we, have, we try a lot of reinforcement learning le- uh, methods like we started out with reinforce and then we tried it uh, something like PPO and so on and TRPO recently. And they, they're good, but um, you know it, they also require a fair bit of our opportunity to get working very well. And on the other hand, um, uh, evolution seems to be very flexible in terms of implementation. And it also one thing that evolution does quite well is that it's easy to diversify uh, the models. So you can just uh, try to uh, in reinforcement learning, one thing it happens, it, it will mm-hmm. zoom in into a particular area area in the search space and find and optimize the a particular mo- uh, a model. Whereas in evolution, it would diversify the population over time. Uh, it's easy to control the diversification uh, process to get better models. So uh, we we use more evolution methods now. Okay, so in the second project, we already found one network that was kind of state of the art in uh, computer vision, um, on par or slightly better on the state of the art of ImageNet. So that was super exciting mm-hmm. because we didn't think that it was possible. And then uh, after that, we realized that uh, this transfer learning has a problem that you know you transfer the cell, and maybe the kind of things that you want on CIFAR and the kind of th- sales that you want for ImageNet that's quite different. So we uh, started searching on ImageNet directly. Basically mm-hmm. you search a model on ImageNet directly, but that became super expensive you know, uh, our back of our overlap calculation, it would take a few months for this Mm -hmm. to finish. Mm -hmm. So we realized that maybe one idea that we can have is search on small scale, search a smaller model on CIFAR. Let's say, uh, instead of searching the biggest model possible that you can find, search for a a small model, right? Like that train only like five epochs in, you know, uh, eight hours or something like that, right? So that's Mm -hmm. small. And after that, we after we found a good model, we figure out a way to scale it up to big uh, size. Uh, so basically make it l- deal with larger image or make it deeper or make it wider. Um, and is that scaling it it up in a, in a learning way or scaling it up? Um, yeah, scaling, um, scaling way. up in a learning way. Okay. Scaling up in a learning way. So the second stage of scaling up, basically what we did was, you know, develop like a, we learn the way that we should be scaling up. And uh, it looks like uh, it works very well. And that became something called efficient. Now it's been used quite a bit uh, in various places um, at Google and in academia. And the smallest network that we found turns out to be super helpful for uh, mobile devices. So people, because the network, small network seem to be uh, quite fast. Uh, for mobile devices, uh, that became something like uh, MobileNet V3, yeah, at Google. And uh, after that, uh, we say, you know, okay, now that we can get state of the art on uh, ImageNet, but the problem is that a lot of building blocks that we used are very much um, building blocks that pre-described by human experts. Let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, we have to make use of uh, the Relu layer designed by designed by human expert or we make use of uh, convolution layer designed by human expert or bash norm layer designed by human experts. Mm-hmm. So we say can we can we um, design everything from scratch mm-hmm. uh, basically assume that we know a numpy library like numpy is this basically just you know matrix vector multiplication and a bunch of non-linearity can you use a NumPy library to evolve the concept of machine learning? And that became something like AutoML Zero. AutoML Zero. Uh, which basically, yeah, that's that's AutoML Zero. And that's basically the, the thought process behind it. In AutoML Zero, zero we didn't get say of the art yet. And, um, but uh, what's exciting about it is um, it generates a program uh, from just matrix vector multiplication and... Um, to do machine learning, which is super exciting, and uh, I hope that using this uh, method we can discover uh, fundamental new fundamental building blocks for uh, for machine learning.
0: Yeah, if folks haven't. If anyone listening hasn't taken a look at any of the blog posts or uh, the paper for AutoML Zero really interesting there's a there's one particular diagram that i've seen a couple different versions of it but it kind of walks through the process that this algorithm takes to learn a model and shows the various steps that um that it introduces and as well as the program that it outputs um and it's super interesting you know talk a little bit about this idea of you know having this Model work by evolving a program, where did that come from? A lot of what we're doing is all software it's all programs, but this in particular is like arithmetic arithmetic operations um that uh in a very kind of simple way define all the steps that are used to um
1: evolve these algorithms yes, yes uh if you think about um what uh uh, machine learning experts are doing nowadays is that basically they look at a computer program, uh, you know, they look, use TensorFlow, right? Mm-hmm. They look at TensorFlow or PyTorch and they have a bunch of players and then they figure out to develop, to write a computer program, to write a new program to do machine learning. Let's say you want to do uh, forecasting or something like that, right? Basically, you uh, look at uh, how people use uh, LSTM, and then you put put together a computer program to do forecasting. Now, the act of writing that program is still now not learned, right? So basically, it's it's basically human expert knowledge. And changing that program can affect the quality of the model greatly. Now, stepping back a little bit is that that program, the programs you just put, assume a lot of knowledge about machine learning, right? Uh, the fact that the concept of gradient, you know, backpropagation is uh, assumed during this process, right? Because the uh, diff- automated differentiation is uh, built in into uh, TensorFlow and PyTorch. So we say that maybe what we can we can do is step back a little bit from PyTorch and, and uh, uh, TensorFlow and uh, start it from NumPy. And using NumPy, can you put together a small uh, computer program that can uh, do, uh, um, you know, CIFAR classification or something like that. Um, Yeah, and uh, in the uh, setup that we have, we have three functions. So uh, one function is uh, uh, setup, meaning that, you know, it's like a DNA that uh, 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 you start with, right? And then there's a predict function, meaning that whatever you have learned, you have to use it to for survival, right? So you have to make, you, given uh, a given um, situation you in, you have to make some prediction. And then the third function is the learn function. Uh, you know, it, uh, it has to learn so that the predict function is better over time. So there's only, this template have only three functions set up, predict, and learn. And AutoML zero has to fill in the rest of the program. The rest of the instructions within these building blocks. Right, it's starting uh, with
0: those three functions being totally
1: empty. Yeah, it started out with these three functions totally empty. So at the beginning, it will started amazing, right? At the beginning, it will do nothing. So most of the programs will be garbage. So you have no signal at all. Mm-hmm. You have no signal at all. So by some random luck, right? It will find some kind of uh, um, dot product linear kind of layer that se- somehow uh, does more than uh, better than random. just slightly a little bit slightly better than random, right? Uh, that's just basically the predict function does a little bit better than random. Mm-hmm. And then it will basically slowly put together uh, one more uh, one more layer to become like a neural net and then it will invent the concept of gradient. So over time, it will come, it started from a very small program that is like new linear to going through many, many steps uh, to eventually do uh, a neural network.
0: And I referenced this diagram. If I'm understanding the diagram correctly, you're identifying all these points where the algorithm evolves these techniques that you know, humans do now, like it eventually figures out how to do SGD. It eventually figures out like ReLU and other things. And it figures out techniques like gradient normalization and stuff Am I reading that correctly? That this is all stuff that the that's, that's, yeah. has figured out?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So basically if you put it in the whole sequence, uh, you know, the first step it will find, find like something like linear model, it find loss clipping, it will find uh, learning rate, and it will find uh, ReLU, um, you know, and then uh, normalizing the uh, input norm, the gradient, uh, and then you know doing, having uh, um, bilinear interaction, things like that. So things that you know, like over the time in the last maybe thirty years of neural networks uh, evolution which is kind of interesting because we never set out to tell the model that they should follow our own evolution process of developing model. But somehow it found very similar trajectories of developing model, just like the way human experts would do it.
0: So that I understand there's no, there's no kind of priors, there's no like recipe book or techniques that are given to the model, the algorithm, at all it's figuring out all of this
1: from nothing or, you know, uh, it... yeah so so uh the caveat is that uh, automl0 has uh, access to 64 functions uh from numpy okay right that's there's some bias here so um, these 64 functions from numpy because the way that linear algebra works is very in favor of neural nets right yeah. so it will tend to develop things like neural net because yeah, of linear so... algebra but so there's, that's the only that there's,
0: there's product there for it to use eventually it's going to try and use it on some stuff
1: but it will be hard for it to find something like trees because you know uh, numpy doesn't have the functions that kind of uh, suitable for trees
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. but it's it's numpy you can argue that numpy is like a library that are very suitable for neural nets right so it will evolve things that eventually look like a neural net now, what's surprising is that it, the whole process of developing models that started from linear and then putting uh, developing learning rate and uh, normalizing um, the gradient and things like that, it looks very much like the evolution, uh, the, our own evolution process of developing machine learning models. Has
0: this allowed you to see future techniques that we may learn to
1: apply? We haven't found anything extremely novel. In the sense that, like we never we haven't seen it before, mm-hmm. but we have found something that uh, that we haven't looked into m- more closely. Uh, so, in particular, uh, it found this bilinear layer uh, that normally, if you do a neural net, you would take x multiply by some w, and then you apply some non nonlinearity. Mm-hmm. Now. What we found during AutoML Auto ML zero is that it prefer x w x so and then apply some non nonlinearity so that basically what it say is a, some kind of bilinear interaction right and mm-hmm. apparently this concept has been de- developed by other colleagues at Google but we never we didn't know it before okay. our project. So we are in the process of trying out this layer on larger problems, but uh, it, it look like, looks like that layer is actually quite promising. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the other thing is the concept of uh, uh, gradient normalization. So basically uh, you take a, the gradient and then you normalize it before you make the update. So mm-hmm. this is not, not something new. So people have done this before, but it's not very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think maybe uh, w- one thing is that uh, we are also trying this on bigger networks now uh, ourselves. But if you can think about this process, this tr- it will aid the process of discovering either new idea or discovering mm-hmm. old ideas, but we actually overlook because we have so many ideas in machine learning that right. we tend to overlook them. So. But uh, some of the recent uh, data look promising. What some of the ideas that it found?
0: Do you think there's uh, an opportunity to use a technique similar to what you did earlier with CIFAR, where you apply AutoML zero in a small way and then scale it up to bigger problems or networks?
1: Yeah, I I still we still thinking about how to do it uh, effectively, but mm-hmm. uh, basically, um, basically, you're right. So. The problems that we did in AutoML Zero is like a, it's not even CIFAR. It's a downscale CIFAR. It's a mm-hmm. small version of CIFAR. So, um, and then you know the concept like uh, gradient normalization or things like um, bilinear interaction is something that it found. And then we can take some of these layers and transfer into big problems. Now, unfortunately, the problem in CIFAR it's so downscale that you we cannot present it like an image. So it's just only 1D. And in 1D, you cannot find things like convolutional neural networks. So that's a, that's a limitation. But in the next step, we tr- try to make it uh, have, like, uh, m- make it see an image rather than just a 1D image. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's one aspect, which is basically how to scale this more effectively, which uh, we did it before. The other thing that we did is to zoom in into a particular aspect of the neural network and can you do better. Uh, so related to this is the uh, uh, the paper that we published, um, you know, a couple of days ago, on evolving a better uh, activation and normalization layer. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, um, uh, in uh, in a neural net, people use this layer called BashNom and ReLU uh, a lot, right? Um, this is in ResNet. If you use ResNet, you have batch norm and ReLU. And then there's a skip connection, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we say, let's f- fuse this into a single layer and search for a new mathematical operation uh, to replace this norm and ReLU. So we accept the rest of the network, but we search for a mathematical operation like, from to find a new layer. And it seems like to find a very good layer as a replacement yeah. uh, and it works bet- better than uh, norm and ReLU.
0: And is the motivation there primarily uh, network performance, or is it computational, or what? What is driving you to focus on those
1: particular layers? Bashnom norm and ReLU. Uh, one thing the bashnom ReLU is uh, a good thing about it, it is it allows you to train with very big batch size. Right? But when, it, when it's very small batch size, it doesn't work very well. So it's a layer that you know, Google would like, but academic, uh, all, and more, most data scientists would not like because mm-hmm. it's, you, know, you don't have a big computer to train with a big batch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a replacement called GroupNorm and ReLU, which is very good. But it works very well on small batch size, but on the big batch size, it's still a little bit worse uh, than, uh, than batch norm. So it's still confusing what to many people what layers to use, even at Google. So developing a new layer is that, first of all, norm ReLU, uh, if it can be a good replacement for norm ReLU, that means the layer can be used by both internal researchers and external researchers well. And the second mm-hmm. thing is uh, norm ReLU helps training. It stabilizes the training a lot. It, it speeds up the training. So. We use it a lot in, our, uh, in in our work, so we really want to uh, improve on that aspect. Mm-hmm. It plays a huge role. There's a there's a paper where they just say that you just train only the batch norm layers um, and don't train the convolutional nets, uh, and you still can get a good performance. You know, it's not great, but mm-hmm. it's good performance. This mean that you know the, the these layers play a very good um, important role. And is that in, paper uh,
0: talking about training those layers only those layers from scratch or fine tuning only those layers?
1: Uh, training those from scratch.
0: And so, is the idea that you're applying techniques like what you've done at auto ml Zero to finding these new layers, or is that a, a totally separate approach? Oh, it's a a, approach? it's a. It's a
1: it's, um, highly related. Uh, and I, I would say, you know, it's, um, an application of this idea of auto ML zero. Cool. And you, so you've also been
0: working on, uh, semi-supervised or self-supervised, uh,
1: learning recently.
0: Can you describe some of that work and how it relates to this stuff?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I, I've been working on this, um, uh, automated machine learning and, uh, uh, automated architecture design and so on, and uh, I gave uh, talks right about my uh, this new development. And a lot of people came to me and complained. They say, "You know, you automate the design of the neural networks, but I have more data than you, so I beat you." Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I say, "Oh, that's a that's a good point." So I I I, I thought about, okay, uh, automate uh, machine learning is cool, but can you automate the labeling process? Mm. Can you automate labeling, right? Because uh, most people would prefer to have more data, because more data is is very is very important, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't mean that architecture is not important, but having more data is also very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, can you automate the process of labeling data, mm-hmm. right? So today you don't have anything. Today you basically get some unlabeled data and you give it to some human experts and then they label mm-hmm. the data for you, annotate the data for you.
0: So, so we've got techniques like active learning that can help you yeah, figure oh, out the best yeah. labels, the best data to label, which helps. Yes,
1: that's right. Yeah, uh, active learning will speed up that process by mm-hmm. uh, selectively choose the the example to annotate the data. Mm-hmm. Now, so um, one idea that we had was um, the concept of pseudo labels. So fake labels. Can you take your model and generate uh, and evaluate on the unlabeled set? And now you have weekly labeled data, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, let's say on ImageNet, you take the pre-trained isn't there,
0: isn't there some, I'm trying to remember the paper, aren't there some papers that talk about a good amount of your labels can be just wrong and you still get good results?
1: Yeah, I, I don't remember that paper, but uh, uh, yeah. The, maybe maybe I'm making that up, but
0: I will try to find it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but our observation is this, right? Like, can you take your own model, generate labels on a new set of unlabeled data, and then put it back, assuming mm-hmm. that they are correct labels and train the new model on that? Well, actually, I tried this idea many, many years ago too, and it didn't work. And the problem, is that you, if you take um, the model and generate the new uh, new label data, the new weekly label data, some of them are accurate. You know, A three would get a three, like that label of three. But sometimes a three would get a label of five. Mm-hmm. And this error would propagate propagate into the new training and it would hurt the new training. And the new training will not get better results than the old training, mm-hmm. right? Because it's uh, the confirmation bias going on. Mm-hmm. Now... You, uh, so I, I, did have, I did not know any way to fix that problem. Uh, um, so, so I thought the concept of self-labeling is, a, is uh, too good to be true. Mm-hmm. But uh, recently, we uh, realized that there's a, a way to overcome this process. Is um, when you train the new training, you inject a lot of noise into the new student. So you have a teacher that generates labels on unlabeled data. You mm-hmm. have a combined set of true label and weekly label data, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or pseudo label data. And you train new student on this new combined set. When you train the student, make sure that you insert a lot of noise. So a lot of noise in the student will, we still don't know this, how, how it is happened yet, but the noise in the students seems to have this process, that it will overcome the uh, confirmation bias, Uh, probably because it will make the student more robust, right? Because Mm -hmm. it has new... Student learns to to
0: not trust the labels all that much.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it learned not to trust the label that much because it has to cope with so much noise. And amazingly, it actually outperformed the teacher. So the noise that we use is basically things like, you know, drop out and drop certain parts of the model, data augmentation, and super aggressively doing this data augmentation and uh, noise. Mm -hmm. And eventually it will do better than the um, student. And you can just iterate the process, right? Once you have a better student, Mm -hmm. you label new data and then you put back. So uh, we've been doing this and it seems to work very well.
0: What's your performance metric or your benchmark?
1: Yeah. So um uh, we worked on this data set called ImageNet. So um when we work on uh this data set, uh, the uh say of the art was like eighty-two percent, and then uh, using architecture search we've pushed it into 85%, eighty-five percent, eighty-five point four percent or something like that, and then Uh, Using this uh, auto label process, you get um, to eighty-eight point four, so three percent improvement. So, and and keep in mind that one percent improvement on image at at that high range is uh, very difficult. Yeah, Um, Yeah. and I'm talking about top one accuracy.
0: Is the setup here that you are you starting with your standard kind of seventy percent? Training and thirty uh, percent test ratio, or uh, does that matter in, in this? And oh, then you're, so you're having your your student uh, label the that thirty percent. Like, did these ratios come into play into into uh, this?
1: Okay, so um, we just follow the conventional uh, ImageNet setup. So ImageNet has a, already have a split of you know maybe one point two million example of training and a uh, hundred thousand uh, for validation. And for for unlabeled data, you would use a different corpus. Uh, so at Google, we have this data set, data set called JFT that has about 300 million images.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you're we, incorporating other data beyond yeah. ImageNet that yeah. you've labeled using um, a model trained on ImageNet yes. just that you don't have any labels for. I mean, you you don't have any labels for your external data set, but you're just labeling it based on ImageNet. Some of those are going to be wrong. So you introduce the noise and it all seems. So
1: So basically, uh, yeah. So uh, here's something that we find really surprising. There's one experiment in the paper that people did not check, but it's super uh, interesting is that We can propagate back images that so ImageNet has uh, a thousand categories, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, some flowers, some dogs, and some cats, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now we we propagate back images that don't have that don't look like any like any categories in one thousand category. So it could be like some kind of very strange animal, right? Right. And the model would just like
0: classes that ImageNet is yeah,
1: it doesn't belong to any yeah any categories and it still helps just by just saying that uh, you know this image is not any of these categories, and this put a lot of low low percentage low probability on a lot of this category you mm-hmm. pro- propagate back it's still okay and that, that's is that consistent with
0: the consistent maybe with the idea that the images are even if they're not you know, helping tune your classifier layers at the end, they're helping the network learn textures and, uh, you know, low-level features better?
1: Yeah, so I think it, what is it really happening is that it just tried to learn uh, information about natural images, right? And mm-hmm. the fact that uh, uh, basically you give it a label, so the teacher give it a label, and then you, when you do data augmentation, you shift the image a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And then you say that, the label is the same. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the probability table looks very similar. So uh, the model has to uh, work really hard to stay consistent in the prediction. So Mm. that's, and natural image in general is just very similar in similar uh, ways, right? So it learns to be consistent in, in terms of labeling for new images. And maybe that's the reason why it's very Mm -hmm. helpful, even though the images might not have anything to do with, um, with your other set.
0: And, uh, you know, I'm curious in kind of articulating that uh, intuition for what's happening. Is that based on, you know, all of your experience working with these kind of networks? or did you perform specific experiments to try to understand what the effect might be? And you know, what were those experiments? Network introspection or any kinds of things. I'm just curious, you know, what are the kinds of things you've done, you know, to to deepen your understanding of why this is working?
1: Okay, so we try to lower the threshold, right? So when you take the your model and then label a new a, a corpus of 300 million images, mm-hmm. we filter out, we have a chance to filter out low confidence images, right? So mm-hmm. things that, you know, have very low prediction, uh, low probability of having... Mm-hmm to be in any of the class. Uh, so we can keep uh one million images or thirty million images or you know three hundred million images or any anywhere in between, right? Mm-hmm. So uh we vary the threshold and it seems like actually uh the threshold can be quite really low. Mm-hmm. Right, It'll be uh, so it could be um, you know uh, in the one hundred thirty million or something like that. It's still okay, mm-hmm. and then we visualize the image that are actually very uh, low accuracy and a um, uh, low uh, uh, confident, and then we visualize them and see what they look like. And they don't apparently they don't look like anything mm-hmm. like on ImageNet. So that's what we found why. It, the fact that they're helpful is is very surprising, but mm-hmm. why they are helpful we still don't know okay. so is this a hypothesis we don't mm-hmm. we don't know yeah 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 i which is basically our current work is trying to analyze why it's helpful
0: okay, and yeah. what do you expect your direction to be in analyzing that?
1: We probably uh, gonna look into the hidden state of the neural network, and you see, uh, we see, you know, with this uh, low confidence, where is it? Is it trying to make the hidden state more consistent to each other? Which is basically mm-hmm. the same phenomenon that a lot of people do in uh, contrastive learning in self-supervised learning is that they also have two images of data augmented image, and they're trying to make sure that the prediction is the same, and uh, uh, if you have two images of unrelated images, you make sure the prediction is uh, different, right? So mm-hmm. I think this is what happened in here. So we, we're gonna visualize some of the hidden state of the neural network with and without these low confident example and see, you know, what happened during training. Okay, That's, that's one direction that we think that we will be doing. Cool, you are
0: also uh, an author on Mina. Mina papers, yes. were you involved yeah. in that? Can you talk a little yes. bit about that work?
1: Yeah, so um, many years ago, I worked on something called sequence to sequence learning, you know, end to end neural network through so NLP, uh, and that's used for translation. And I spent like uh, two years after that trying to build uh, like a chat bot to, okay. to chat with me because I always fascinate like, can you have an agent that can talk to me? You know, Maybe
0: intelligent, all your emails, and you know, does yeah. it sound like you, or were you trying yeah. to? Were you trying to have a communication with the chatbot or were you trying to replace yourself, quote unquote, with the chatbot by having other people be able to talk to your both, both. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, just talking to computers is uh, is fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. And so uh, I failed, um, uh, and then we, uh, I, uh, and then we ended up meeting this person called uh, at Google, and a very uh, great engineer at Google called Daniel, and he um, he said, "How about let's work together to make this better." And uh, we did a lot of work on scaling up some of the models that we built. Uh, uh, we collected um, huge amounts of social uh, media data, to, mm-hmm. you know, people talking on the internet, and then we trained a, a huge model, like a model that I, I you know, maybe a hundred times bigger than what I trained back in the day, uh, and it can do multi-turn conversations. It started doing multi-turn conversation very well, and uh, one of the magic moments that I really think that's truly magic is that it actually invented like a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, it invented a joke. So people talk, uh, it made this pun that, uh, uh, you know, horses go to Harvard. So uh-huh. cows go to um, uh, Harvard, cows go to Harvard, uh-huh. and horses go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. But uh very fascinating. Um and well, I remember
0: been, it's been a while since I've looked at that one, but I remember it was the, you know, when you describe it as inventing this joke, it wasn't anywhere in the training data yes. that you could
1: find, right? Yeah. The only instance of mentioning Hayward is, doesn't have very any, anywhere. There's only one instance of mentioning the word Hayward in the training data. Uh-huh. And we look at that context and it has nothing that looks like what we uh, are like horses go to heaven at all
0: and and so what do you think was happening there how did that work i that's unlike what we see in kind of conventional language models like even the big ones they're picking
1: up stuff that they've seen before generally right okay so i i gotta tell you my version my version (laughs) is the following my version is the following i i I, we still don't know right that this is that's why i say it's a magic moment i think first of all um a lot of social media uh, jokes Mm-hmm. About puns,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? A, a lot of you know, like we find puns kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and um and so, funny. yeah, and a punny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the training data, we train with bi pair encoding, meaning that we take a word and we break it down into mm. pieces. Yeah. So it's Hayward is not a word. It's right two words. Hey, but at right, and Harvard and etc so it must have learned the concept of puns. and if it would understand that you know Harvard and Harvard somehow is kind of related mm-hmm. so it made up this pun so two things right learning the concept of puns and learning how to put together like an a, a new concept and uh, yeah it does a lot of new things like it make a, a jokes uh, like it make jokes about why chicken cross the roads and things like that. Um, I don't remember the particular jokes. I can find it and send it to you. It makes all kind of new jokes that we we never found in the training data, and it's it's truly fascinating.
0: Hmm. And so, where do you um, you know that line of work? Where do you see that going? What, what were the key? You know, was this was this kind of simply you know quote unquote uh, an instance of scaling up the? training or were there some, you know, new techniques or novel things that were developed, uh, you know, in the model that you can see applying elsewhere?
1: Well, uh, first of all, um, it, it basically tells a lot of people that scaling up is very effective why to be, uh, you know, uh, NLP uh, models, right? Like mm-hmm. I spent two years failing doing that chatbot and then suddenly someone came along and uh, found a solution and the solution is kind of simple which is basically just make the model a lot larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- we also found uh, a lot of new new in- interesting insights is that uh, during the process of building the bot we had ve- a lot of difficulty how to measure the performance of the bot. So basically we, we one thing that we want to measure is how human-like it is. Right. We want to be a bot that have a conversation, like a human-like. So we to measure human-like, we always want to ask human to look at a conversation that we have with a bot because we build very many models of the bots, right? Like right. Many, many models of the bots. And every model we have to look at and use human expert to look at the conversation and say, hey, mm-hmm. how human-like this is. So during the process, one thing that we observe is that um, as the perplexity of the model so you know, as you train the model better, so the objective function is called perplexity. It's mm-hmm. like a very local objective. It's basically how how well you predict the next word, mm-hmm. right? And we've noticed that this objective function correlates very well with human uh, judgment of human likeness of the bot. Mm-hmm. And and then we did a real plot of perplexity, which is the local objective function. You know, predicting the next word and um, human likeness, and we saw like a, cor- a strong correlation. Mm-hmm. So that's basically another contribution for NLP is that actually this local objective function, which is just predicting the next world, next if you do a good job at it, turns out it's also a more global objective function, which is human likeness, how, how I can be- behave like a human. So local um, mimicking is global mimicking.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, What's interesting about that is that, you know, you know, perplexity being kind of predicting the next word. What, what makes jokes and puns work is that the next word is a surprise compared to what you saw. So how, how do you get something that's good at jokes, but also is optimizing on perplexity?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's the reason why I say it's very super uh, surprising (laughs) Uh, that low. So there's a, let me try uh, to say it again. So there must be a low, a global objective function that we are optimize. We like making fun mm-hmm. so that we can get engagement, right? Making fun, um, saying something meaningful, yeah. right? Uh, that's that global, right? right. Uh, that's something that's not just optimizing the next world. Mm-hmm. But what I'm just claiming is that the local objective function is that actually just predicting the next world. It's highly that's somehow, global. The go correlate to the global. Right. I guess you I could argue
0: say, that you're what perplexity doing is doing in in the case of the joke is predicting surprise. It's not like blind to the yeah. surprise, but it's, it's predicting the surprise based on it's predicting the
1: surprise. Yeah, yeah. you could say that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kwok for taking the time to share with us what you're up to and kind of walk us through these you know recent works here. It's really really interesting stuff.